Hi, everybody. My name is Burke. Uh, like Blake said, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, uh, I'd like to do that later. Um, like I said, I'm not, not a pastor here, not even uh, an elder here. Uh, I'm just some schmuck. Um, yeah, I really am. Um, so if it's your first time here, please come back. They'll fix it later. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm not totally without my qualifications. I'm on staff with an organization called Crew. It's a, a campus ministry where, where uh, essentially I'm a missionary to college students at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, here with my wife, Kristen, we've been members uh, of the church here for a, a couple of years now. We've got two little girls. Uh, you may have seen them running around in matching outfits. They are always in matching outfits, <laughs> always. Uh, they go to sleep at night in matching pajamas. Kristen and I are the only ones that know, uh, but they're, they're always matching. Uh, so one of the, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm on staff with, with a, a parachurch ministry. And, and one of the things about being, at least on staff with my organization, is that I'm like hyper self-aware, like more, taking more like personality tests and uh, strengths finder things and like any any healthy person probably really really should have uh, my wife is really into one right now called the Enneagram I, I don't know if you guys are, are familiar with this one or not um, it's not important she's a one which means that she's a perfectionist and you all look at her and you think oh yeah that makes total sense uh, I'm a three uh, which means that I'm an achiever uh, and then you all look at me and think like really that guy uh Shouldn't an achiever be impressive? Uh, well, you know, that's not very nice. But it's like a snare drum or something. Uh, so what that essentially means about me is, is that I find a lot of I'm just going to stand still. Sense of value and self-worth and being seen and recognized by other people for what I can accomplish. Uh, and I think so this is like especially true about me, but then also at least and on some level a little bit true. Yeah, sure, why not? That was not the perfect course of action. Um, is this on? Can okay, cool. I can't hear it as as well. Um, yeah. So everybody's this way a little bit. Everybody wants to be seen. Everybody wants to be recognized. Uh, one of the the ways. I, at least I think this is true about everybody because it's, it's true about our, the heroes that we like in some of our favorite stories. So, for example, uh, Harry Potter start, starts out like life. The, the story begins with he's, he's a regular dude, even maybe like a less than regular dude, right? He's, he's an orphan. He lives under the stairs. But then it turns out that there's actually something hidden in, about him that's exceptional. He's a wizard. And, and then it turns out he's not just a, a wizard. He's like this really exceptional wizard. Um, or, you know, Luke Skywalker or Ray, if you're a Star Wars fan, right? They, they start out like these pretty normal people, but then it turns out that they have this exceptional like space wizard stuff going on. And, and then they go off and they both save the galaxy. Um, and it's not like a recent phenomenon in literature either. This is something that's, that's existed in our, our literature for hundreds of years. Like 
King Arthur, right, was just like some normal boy who came along and pulled a sword out of stone and because there was something hiddenly exceptional about him. Uh, and, and he became, you know, king over Camelot, which didn't exist. But anyway, and there are probably other, uh, there are probably other stories. Um, I don't know. I'm, I was a business major, not a literature major. Uh, but there's this archetype or this repeated, like, story through, throughout our, our favorite stories because, I think, it speaks to, to this deep desire in, in our heart, this thing that we, we kind of, like, fear is true and then hope is true about all this. This fear that, like, maybe, maybe I'm normal or maybe I've come to terms with the idea that I'm, I'm sort of the, an average person, but, person but, but still, wouldn't it be great if there was something about me that, that was exceptional? Wouldn't, there be, wouldn't it be great if there was something about me that set me apart from everybody else? So if you've, if you've been coming, you know we've been going through Genesis for a long, long time. Uh, so last week, Ben introduced us to a guy named Abram, uh, a pretty exceptional guy. And so we're going to continue to look at his story together today. Uh, but first I'll pray, and then we'll start actually talking about the Bible. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to come and, and share what you've been teaching me over the last few days. Um, Heavenly Father, I, I pray that uh, as we look at the word together, uh, that you'd speak through me, that Holy Spirit, you'd yeah, fill me with your, your power and presence, because I, I realize that nothing I do or say can change anybody's hearts or draw anybody closer to you without you working. So would you do that? Would we come away from this time knowing you better and loving you more? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start in the, the middle of chapter 12. If you've got a Bible, you can flip open and, and follow along. I'm not really going to read the first few stories that we go through because that would take forever. Um, the Bible's important. You should read it. How else will you know who God is? Uh, if you don't have a Bible, they say that you can take those home. Uh, if you're like, man, quit trying to give me stuff and it makes you feel better, you can just like pretend that you're stealing it. And maybe that'll give you the thrill of like, ooh, I'm taking something I shouldn't. I, and then you'll have a Bible and we'll all be happy. Um, <laughs> so last week, Ben introduced us to Abram, and he's 75. Like, life, life didn't start out great for Abram. At least I don't, it doesn't say that, but I think we can infer that, right? He's a 75-year-old dude who's done absolutely nothing of note before he turned 75. Um, he, he lives in a culture where, like, the main purpose or, or like, one of the, the main things that everybody's got to do while they're alive is have a, have a son so that they can have an heir. But he and his wife, Sarai, have been totally childless for their, their, entire, their entire life. Uh, and just to kind of like, you know, extra punch in the gut, uh, Abram's name means number one dad. Uh, not, not literally. It means exalted father. But so he, this is a guy walking around. Every, everybody calls him dad in a culture where that's really important, but he has no kids. And, and so that... That's not great. Uh, and so God comes along, gives him a blessing, says, hey, we're going to do a, a fresh start in this land that I'll show you. And, and Abram, at the age of 75, like heads halfway across the known world to a new place uh, to, to get a fresh start. And uh, after he arrives in Canaan, uh, he, he shows up there and promptly encounters a famine. Uh, there's no food because it didn't rain. 
And so Abram, uh, he's there with his, his nephew Lot and his wife Sarai. So they, they go ahead and they head to Egypt uh, to wait out the famine because there's the Nile River there and there's food there. So he, he goes to Egypt looking for some food. But on, on the way, he kind of gets this idea like, oh, this could be dangerous. And, and it's, it could be especially dangerous because evidently Sarai, even though she's probably like 65 or, or older at this point, is still a total babe. Uh, and some, some of you are thinking like, yeah, it sounds like me. Um, you know, in 10 years. Uh, <laughs> but so Abram's thinking, my wife is so beautiful. What they're going to do as soon as we arrive in Egypt is, well, they're going to kill me and then take my wife. So what do I do? Well, I guess, okay, I guess we'll just pretend we're not husband and wife. Hey, Sarai, when we get to Egypt, pretend that I'm your brother so that way nobody kills me. Uh, so they, they get there. They pretend that they're, they're uh, brother and sister. And apparently Abram is right. Apparently people take notice. And not just people, but the, the sons of the Pharaoh, the princes of Egypt, like notice Sarai. And they're like, we need one of those. Uh, and so Pharaoh takes Sarai into his house. And in exchange, he gives camels and goats and oxen and all the great stuff to, to Abram is like payment for Sarai. And, and at this point, you're thinking like, wait a minute, Burke, that sounds a, an awful lot like, and I'm like, yes, yes, it sounds, there, there are kids in the room. It does sound like that. It does sound like he was paid for his wife. Uh, that, that's what it is. And you're like, man, that's, that's horrible. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's horrible. Uh, Abram, Abram did that. And you're like, why is that in the Bible? Well, the, the Old Testament or the Bible, the Old Testament especially, it's not necessarily just like a blueprint for our lives and how we're supposed to live. This is not behavior that's to be emulated. Uh, this is in the Bible because it's an honest account of what actually happened. Uh, this really happened. Abram really went to Egypt and, and sold his sister. Uh, to, to Pharaoh, and, and that sounds horrible to us. And the, the good news is, is that that also sounds horrible to God, right? And we see that because what, the way God responds is he afflicts Pharaoh and his house with plagues. And God rescues Sarai out of that situation. Uh, and the net effect is that Abram and Sarai go back to Canaan, where, where God originally told them to go, really wealthy now and probably with, like, some more trust issues in their marriage than there used to be. Um, but, uh, so that's what, that's what happened. So now they're living in Canaan, uh, and they're, they're living next door to their nephew Lot, and things are going well financially for them at this point. And I don't mean just like, hey, they're kind of turning a profit. Things are going, like, really well financially. I'm stepping on somebody's paper. Sorry about that. Uh, things are going really well. Like, they've got these enormous herds, and there's so many animals that, that need to eat so much grass and drink so much water that there's not enough room for Abram's herds and Lot's herds all in the same spot. And so their employees, their shepherds, are, are kind of getting into it with each other, kind of bickering with one another over the, the prime pasture or watering hole. So uh, Abram and Lot get together, and they're like, hey, come on. There's, you know, it's a big country. Abram says, Lot, you pick a spot, and that can be your spot, and then I'll go somewhere else, and, and it'll be fine. And so Lot picks the Jordan River Valley and, and settles near a town called Sodom. 
and Lot kind of, or, and Abram kind of heads off to the south and, and settles near a town called Hebron. And they, they part on good terms, but they needed to part because there just wasn't enough land for, for all the animals that they had. So and that brings us to a point where um, we start getting geopolitical. Uh, if you, so in the ancient Near East uh, about this time, most, most kingdoms were not really the way we think of a kingdom. They were, they were, people lived in city-states. And so if you were a king, you weren't really king over like a large region usually. You were usually just king over kind of your town. Uh, and there, there were kings over large areas like Pharaoh of Egypt. And if you happened to be one of these more powerful kings, uh, what was normal practice for you would be to go and kind of like make war against these other kings, but not really like conquer and annex the way that we conquer, like not we, but <laughs> we think about it today. Uh, but, but to just more like organized crime, kind of like kick them until, until they want to pay you. And so, so you, you, you go and you subjugate these, these other guys, uh, and then they, they pay you yearly tribute for, you know, because you're bigger and stronger than they are. And so there was this one such king, uh, King Cheddar Laumer of Elam. Uh, Elam's in present-day Iran, so if you're familiar with Elam Ministries, that shares the name. Anyway, um, Cheddar Laumer and, and, like, four of his buddies come over to to kind of the Canaanite area and, and conquer like five kings over there. Uh, four? Anyway, it doesn't matter. They conquer, including Sodom and Gomorrah. And so for 12 years, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and these, these other towns are having to pay tribute to Cheddar Laumer. And then in year 13, these guys rebel, meaning they decide, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. And they just don't make their, their mortgage payment. So in year 14, because, you know, stuff takes a while, Cheddar Laumer gathers his buddy together, comes back, makes war against Sodom and Gomorrah again, and carts off as punishment a whole bunch of captives and loot and, and all that other stuff. Well, all this is important because Sodom, one of these conquered areas, is where Lot happens to live. And so one of the captives that Cheddar Laumer, a cheese lemur, and his kings... Uh, cart off is Lot, uh, Abram's nephew. And so a, a guy escapes and comes and tells Abram, hey, Lot's been carted off. And so Abram gathers together 318 of his, of his own guys and goes chasing after Lot. And he, he finds uh, King Cheddar Laumer and his like four or five armies. And, and with 318 guys, he attacks at night in kind of like a pincer movement uh, and wins. And he defeats what, what this like, group of five kings could not defeat on their own by himself. It's a pretty incredible accomplishment. Uh, so he, he wins. He brings all the captives home, takes all the, the stuff that they stole, and he, and he heads home. And then that's where we're going to pick up now, finally, in Genesis chapter 14, uh, verse 17. So if you want to follow along, we're going to read that. It'll also be on the screen, I think. After his return, that's Abram's, after Abram's return from the defeat of Cheddar Laumer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, King's Valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. 
But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Okay, so after his victory, uh, Abram's on, like near home, and there are two kings that come out to meet him, uh, the king of Sodom and Mel- Melchizedek, uh, king of Salem. And we'll, we'll talk about both of them. We'll talk about Sodom first the king of Sodom first. Uh, so he's the guy whose people and stuff and everything were, were carted off and, and taken away. Uh, and he comes out to meet Abram, essentially to, to, to negotiate with him, to, to get, but he wants his people back. And he makes this pretty generous offer to Abram where he says, hey, you can keep the stuff. I would just like all the people that were, were taken away back. Uh, and Abram, in, in this really sort of extremely interesting move, says, no thanks, just take it all. Uh, I don't need any of it. And I don't want people to think that I owe you anything or that you made me rich somehow, so I don't want any of it. I did it for free. I just wanted Lot back. Uh, Pretty incredible. And then he says, let let the neighbor, those those three guys at the end, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, those are his neighbors. He says, let them take their share, but I don't want anything. The other king that comes out to meet Abram in this valley of kings is Melchizedek, king of Salem. Uh, he hasn't been present in the story up until this point. He's not one of the, the allies of Chedorlaomer that did any of the conquering. He's not one of the kings that got conquered. Uh, he might have been next on the hit list, but, but so far he hasn't been involved in this story at all. And he's king over Salem. Uh, now we know Salem is Jerusalem. Um, and, and he comes out, and really for no other reason than to just, like, praise Abram. He comes, and he, he, gives, him a, uh, he gives him a snack of, like, bread and wine, and, and he, he says a blessing over him. And, and Abram seems to, like, really appreciate this, like, really. Because the, the, way, the way that Abram responds is he takes a, a tenth of everything that, that he conquered and gives it to Melchizedek, the, this, this king of Salem. Abram is just like, he's such an interesting character, right? He's, he's a late bloomer. Like, he was, he was 75 years old before he did anything of, of note. But then he just, like, gets really busy doing pretty impressive stuff. Uh, he's got, like, in, in every way that, that, like, the typical man, like, judges himself against other men like Abram is is doing very well in. He has an extremely beautiful wife. Uh, He has buckets of money, so much money he can like say, no, I'll go fight your war for free. Thank you much. Uh, He's, he's got, he's, you know, probably pushing 80 at this point, uh, but he still has the physical prowess to go take, to lead an army against a superior force and win. Uh, I would settle for, like, getting rid of my love handles. Uh, so he's, and he's, he's like, one, one of the things I just can't help notice about Abram is that he's constantly noticed by kings. Uh, he goes to Egypt and he meets Pharaoh. 
uh, Cheddar Laumer comes into town, and, and the only guy that can beat him is Abram. Since he's the only guy that can beat him, there are these other kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, that come out to, to negotiate with Abram and to honor him. He's just an impressive guy. Um, and it's interesting to me that he chooses the bread and the wine, the snack, over the, the money, every, everything that the king of Sodom offers him. And it's funny because it's, it's only bread and wine. Like, it's, it's pretty standard. There's not even, like, a turkey leg, right? Of course not. Those are from North America, Burke. Don't be silly. Uh, it's, Abram could afford all the bread and wine that he could possibly eat and drink. But, but rather than... But still, that's, that's what he feels appreciative of. And I, I think it's... Be, it's because, not because, like, it's, it's what he's actually given. It's, it's what it symbolizes, right? It's the recognition. Melchizedek came out from Salem not, not because he had something to gain or something to negotiate with, uh, with Abram about. He came out just, just because he recognized the greatness of Abram, just because he recognized what, what an incredible accomplishment it, it was. And Abram really appreciates that. Right? Isn't it nice just to be noticed sometimes? Just to feel like somebody appreciates you every once in a while? I think it's more than just nice. It's like a driving force in every person's life. Uh, it's like the, the desire to be appreciated or noticed. It's, it, right? it's why we, 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 we invest so much time and effort in our careers. But because if I can, if I can just get that, that next promotion or, or a little bit higher paycheck, like that, that will show the world that, that I'm like an important and valuable person. Or, or it's why this like strange parenting culture that's where we're like competitive with one another about how great our kids are has developed. Um, I mean, you know, you, you work tirelessly over your child and you're like trying to get them into the best school or standing in line for hours to get the right swim lessons or whatever. And, and it's all just because like, I really want Katie Carpool Lane to, to just say like, oh, you're such a good mom. Because when that, when that happens, it's like, it's like endorphins to the brain. Like, oh, yes, my life is justified. Or um, college students. Right? This is why like, a bad grade on the French quiz sends us into a pit of despair. It, it's not really because, like, oh, my gosh, I got a bad grade on my, my French quiz. Like, I'm going to starve. Um, it, it's because your, your GPA is this like, liquid measure of whether or not you are excellent or mediocre. And it's going to signal to the world, or you think, really just your first employer, but it's going to signal to the world like whether or not you are an excellent or mediocre person. And the idea of being mediocre is, is horrifying. And that's, that's why we're horrified by a C on a French quiz. That's why social media is so addicting. That's why when you, you post something on Instagram, you're back on five minutes later to see how many people liked it. Was I recognized? Was I seen? Did people notice me? This what we're talking about. It's called, it's called glory. Glory is that, it's that idea of being both praiseworthy 
and praised for our praiseworthiness, right? I'm exceptional and other people notice. The thing about glory is that our desire for it is absolutely limitless. Like we, we can, there's this like dark pit in our hearts that we just tr- keep trying to pour glory into and it will never ever be filled. That's not because there's something defective about us. We were actually designed that way. Um, I mean, th- th- this is why we see guys like Tom Brady still playing football, right? He's the modern-day Abram, right? Beautiful wife, buckets of money, I mean, bathtubs of money. Uh, he's the consensus greatest quarterback of all time, like favorite position of like the most important sport in our society. Like there's nothing left for him to earn. There's nothing left for him to prove but he won't quit even though his wife is asking him to. Because even though he's achieved essentially more glory than any other football player ever will, it's still not enough. And I'm not just picking on Tom Brady. It's, we, we look at him because he's, he's got a lot of it. If I, if I were there, I'd be doing the same thing, and I am doing the same thing. As I, I, I chase like the next yada boy, the next, hey, good job, the next, hey, you're such a great mom. It's never enough. And that's disheartening news for a guy like me because I'm no Abram, right? I don't have the, I have a beautiful wife. I do not have the buckets of money. I do not have the like, kings don't notice me. If Abram and, and Tom like, can, will never ever feel like it's enough, if they'll never ever get there, then what hope do I have? Right? If, if just to get some bread and wine, you, you have to go out with like 300 guys and, and win a war, what, what hope do I have? Who would ever give me bread and wine? The answer is Jesus. Jesus will give us the bread and wine. Uh, Melchizedek is king of, Jer- king of Salem, king of Jerusalem, priest of God Most High, but, but Jesus is the true king of Jerusalem who, who sits on the throne and, and, and will reign over the new Jerusalem for, for, forever and ever. Jesus is, is the true high priest of God Most High who, who is interceded for perfectly and, and sufficiently for the entire world for all eternity. And Jesus offers us the, the truer and better bread and wine, a bread and wine far greater than anything Abram ever tasted himself. I think we're really comfortable with, with the idea of thinking of like, Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. I think we're less comfortable with the idea of like, Jesus offering himself to us. Uh, in communion, or at the Lord's Supper, when, when Jesus was with his disciples uh, on, on his last night before he died, he didn't like break bread and, and pour wine and then leave it on the table and say, this is done on your behalf. He broke the bread and he poured the wine and then he gave it to his disciples to eat and drink. When, when we celebrate communion here in, in a few minutes, like it like, I, I won't come down there and, like, break the bread, and you'll think, wow, Burke has really great bread-breaking skills, and then you stay in your seat. 
You'll, you'll get up out of your chair, and you'll come forward, and you'll eat Jesus. You, even like communion, like the word communion, right? It's, it's not about so much the sacrifice that's made on our behalf. Communion is about the communion that we experience with Christ. It is, that is, it's about our union of personhood with him. So that it, it reflects a truth that when we place our faith in Jesus, uh, we go through this fundamental change where our personhood is united to him. We take him in. He is in us, and now we are in him. And so we're, we're com- forever and completely changed. And what the result of that is what's true about Jesus is now true about us, and what was true about us is now true about Jesus. That's how Jesus dies for our sins, and that's how we receive a righteousness that we didn't actually earn. So we, we were, everything that's true about Jesus is true about us now. We have his righteousness. We have his relationship with the Father. We, we sh- and, and we also have his glory. And that's, that's almost like an embarrassing thing to think about ourselves, right? Like, you're, you're saying that I have the same glory and honor and praise that all of creation is going to shower on the Son of God? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, same, the same honor that is bestowed on the man who saved the world? Like, that's for, that's for you too. So if, if that's true about us, then what, what, what sort of lives ought we live in response? Like lives where we, we chase after those things that, that we think are going to make us like look better in the eyes of other people. Those things like in every Bible study you've ever sat through in your whole life, you've told the group like, yeah, I know it's not really going to satisfy me, but you still make decision after decision after decision in your life to chase after that thing. We have a freedom now. I'm free from having to chase after that because I have the recognition and glory that my heart really desires. More than that, I have a a recognition and a glory and an honor from from the only person who matters in, in measure beyond my wildest dreams. There's nothing left to prove. I don't have to chase my GPA. I don't have to try and climb up that career ladder faster than everybody else. I don't, I don't have to try and be a better mom. We can spend our lives on eternal concerns rather than trying to spend our entire life just being noticed or appreciated or getting what's ours. The, the, the gospel, the good news, the incredibly good news is that thing that we've always feared isn't true but secretly hoped that it was, that that maybe there really is something exceptional about me. Maybe there, there really is this hidden thing about me that, that makes me praiseworthy. It's true. It's true, all of it. Beyond our wildest dreams, more than we could ever imagine. You are exceptional because you are in, if you are in Christ. Because Jesus didn't just offer himself for you, but offers himself to you. 
you don't have to chase after the things of the world anymore. Jesus is the true bread and wine. He's that, that reg- recognition that we've, we've always wanted. He is our glory. When, when we take hold of Jesus, when we press into him, when we experience intimacy with our Savior, that's when, that's when we receive that thing that we're, we're chasing after. That's when we receive that life that we want, that glory that we're, we so desire. 